that's why I adopted the term local energy, uh, because I wanted people to realize this isn't just a, is my electricity bill going to go down? This is like farm to table for electrons. It's a, it's a movement that transcends technology, that transcends um, uh, policy. It's about communities and families. It's about equality and equity. Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 69th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, I am very excited to bring you a conversation with an individual who is quickly rising to national prominence within the clean energy sector with his own sphere of influence through a podcast, startup companies, and now most recently, a book focused on local solar and storage. But as always, before we get into the details, we've got a few updates. All right, so just some quick policy updates for our listeners regarding the goings-on here in North Carolina. The next few weeks are slated to be busy ones, with some major developments expected to take place within offshore wind and at the North Carolina Utilities Commission. Just this week, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management kicked off the lease auction for the wind energy area off the coast of North Carolina, otherwise referred to as Wilmington East. We're expecting to hear news shortly regarding the size of the winning bids and the developers who won the rights to that area. Given that we recorded this episode a little earlier in the week, the results of the auction may be out as of the time of this release. Make sure to tune in next episode as we'll be sharing more details on the auction. And of course, make sure to give your favorite energy publications a read, as I'm sure many of them will be tracking this closely. And next week, we're expecting to see Duke Energy file their carbon plan draft, outlining how they intend to achieve the carbon reduction mandates established under HB 951. That filing is due on May 16th. Immediately after it's filed, NCSEA and a number of our partners will share some reactions to the filing that you can make sure to read via our blog. After our team has had a few days to digest the full-on plan, we'll aim to release a deeper dive synopsis of the filing, and potentially host a conversation on the podcast about what it means for carbon reduction and for ratepayers here within the state. And if you're available to join us in person in Asheville for our Clean Energy in the Mountains event on May 19th, we'll be diving into more of the details of the plan there as well. Okay, on to the show. As I mentioned, our guest on today's show is an especially exciting one as he fairly recently made a pivot into the clean energy ecosystem after years and years as a successful tech executive. Our guest is bringing that tech, entrepreneurial, and financial experience to clean energy to revolutionize how we think about the industry to usher in a new era built on the foundation of local solar and storage. And carrying on from the theme of our episode with Julian Spector, this guest also has ties to North Carolina, starting with a degree right here from North Carolina State University. For those that recently attended the State Energy Conference here in Raleigh, you may recognize his voice as he was one of the keynote speakers at the conference. However, I'll note that we recorded this conversation a few months back, so some of our conversation predates the conference, but is nevertheless still equally as interesting. Okay, and with that, let's get into today's episode. Hey! 
Clean energy. Our guest is a 25-year tech CEO with several exits, including an IPO. His companies have created thousands of jobs and billions in shareholder value. Along the way, he also worked at Greylock as a venture capitalist, and after selling his marketing tech company to IBM, he was promoted to vice president of corporate strategy to help lead IBM's global strategy for their CEO and SVPs. In 2017, he jumped into the clean energy market. It started with a TED Talk, which grew into 100-plus articles, then became a top 10 energy podcast, and as of late 2021, a book called Freeing Energy, which has hit Amazon's number one new release in three categories, solar, energy, and energy policy. He also has a startup called Solar Inventions that is commercializing a patented breakthrough in the manufacturing process of silicon PV. He has a degree in electrical engineering from North Carolina State University and an MBA from the Harvard Business School. Friends of the pod, please welcome Bill Nussi, CEO and founder of Freeing Energy and CEO and co-founder of Solar Inventions. All right. So, Bill, we're very excited to have you on uh, today's show as part of our focus on North Carolina energy alumni, uh, in which we put a spotlight on accomplished energy careers with a tie to North Carolina. So, as our listeners may or may not know, you actually received your bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from NC State University. So, uh, one, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you here. And, uh, And so, I'm also really curious... Um, how or was this time at NC State and in North Carolina formative to your energy career? Well, I was a double E, so I got you know neck deep or maybe drowning over my head deep in the math and science of how grids and small systems work. And I actually started at NC State to do robotics, and there was too much math for me. So I switched my focus to microprocessors. And that's what I ended up doing for the bulk of my career afterwards until a few decades later, I found the clear path again and uh, have now f- uh, set my career sights for energy. But yeah, the, ex- the education there was amazing. Very hard for me. Uh, uh, but I think the other thing I just want to put in a plug for North Carolina State University, you know, there's a professor there who's recently retired or about to retire named Tom Miller. And back when he was a young teacher, uh, I had this, I was running a company out of my dorm room and, and that was a very unusual idea. And there were situations where I had a giant pitch and I had to get on a plane and it was, it, it, it got in the way of his exams and he would let me take the exams later. He was so supportive. Uh, and that flexibility, I mean, without a doubt was allowed us to build that early stage company in my dorm room, uh, uh back in the you know mid eighties. And I think that's part of the heart of North Carolina State and all the universities is that they're really, you know, what is what is this? What's the potential of this kid? And uh, I, I, for me, it made all the difference in my career. And um, it's interesting you say that. I, you know, I think you and and others really helped to pave the path uh, for North Carolina to really be known as a university that fosters entrepreneurship. Actually, a study came out recently in which uh, NC State ranked at the very top of the list um, for entrepreneurialism. Uh, so really fascinating to hear how that kind of ties together for you. And I think if you look at the research that most of, most of what I've seen, it all traces back to Tom Miller. I mean, I don't want to put too much on him because there's a lot of other people, but he was, I mean, I, I stayed in touch with him. They just recently um, 
we've got a bunch of his uh, fans from over the years, his students have put together a million dollar uh, Tom Miller fund for his next generation of students to go start companies with. And, you know, it's hard to look at things entrepreneurial at NC State and you don't find his fingerprints. And it's inspiring to me because not only did it change my life, but it's a real testament to what a single person can do, uh, even in a university, which is sometimes accused of being bureaucratic and resistant to change. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud NC State alumni and very proud to have grown up in Raleigh. Uh, I miss it, but Atlanta's home now, and we're very happy here, too. Good. Uh, and I know we have a lot of friends and listeners uh, down in the Atlanta area, uh, but it also makes me excited to hear uh, that you take a lot of pride in NC State uh, as I'm also a Wolfpack alum, uh, and I don't think we get enough Wolfpack shout-outs on the podcast here. So uh, for all the Wolfpack listeners, woof, woof. yeah, there we go. Uh, so you've had a, a very long and successful career working as an executive in the tech industry uh, with your own company, DaVinci Systems, and then to others like Silverpop and IBM. Uh, but it wasn't until after all that time that you transitioned into the clean energy space. So what initially piqued your interest leading to this career shift in clean energy? Well, I, I, I wrote a book uh, and finished it a couple months ago called Freeing Energy. And in there, there's a story that kind of answers this question. But I'll put it to you somewhat rhetorically as a question. You know, think about Netflix. Netflix started in 1997. And it wasn't until 2007 that they started actually delivering streaming video. And the question you can answer it if, or take it as rhetorical, but why didn't Netflix just start doing streaming early on? There were modems and color, you know, and color graphics computers. Why did they wait until 2007 to do streaming? And why did it take another five or six years for it to really take off? Uh, you know, the answer is that uh, it was too expensive. It wasn't commercial or technically easy and straightforward to do streaming. Technically, yeah, you could do it, but it would, it would, it just wouldn't be a great experience. It, too few people could use it. And that's precisely why this is when I got into the energy business, because we, we hit a tipping point that should have made the headlines of every newspaper and journal in, in the country and in the world. And it, and it just passed right by and no one made a big deal out of it. But in somewhere, depending on which numbers and averages you use, somewhere between 2018 and 2019, solar became the least expensive way to generate electricity in human history, cheaper than anything. And, uh, and, also along that same time frame, for related but not entirely similar reasons, rooftop solar, which is what my book and my work is about, it became less expensive to generate electricity, all costs included, with rooftop solar than it did to buy electricity from the grid. And so that's exactly why now. Before, before this, clean energy was a, a very important cause, but it was entirely about environmentalism which is obviously very important and has given us tremendous early strides towards a clean energy future. But what happened in the last few years uh, since I've gotten into it, because I knew this would happen, it's entirely predictable that it would hit this tipping point as it now has. Uh, this has become one of the biggest business opportunities in history. So imagine being in an industry as all of your listeners and you know, is like not only can you make a huge impact on the world and its future, but you can build a business doing it. And that's an exciting transition. And that's why, now is the time for me. So going back to your analogy and talking about Netflix, so do you foresee coal, natural gas, and the major utilities as being the blockbuster in that sort of analogy here in which Ooh. they kind of fade into the darkness over time? No, no, that's a great question. If I'd see it and talk to you, I would have put that into the book. Uh, that's a great metaphor. Uh, I do make the metaphor between 
Apple iPhones and Blackberries all the time, but I like yours better. Uh, no, I think the utilities play an incredibly critical role, but it's one that's different than what they do today. And, you know, without a lot of push, they would really probably prefer to continue with the, the business model they have today that they've had for 100 years. And uh, it's, uh, you know, there's only, as far as I know, there's only three widespread regulated monopoly businesses left in the United States, you know, because 100 and 150 years ago, the railroads and the um, sugar and oil were all dominated by trusts and, um, and monopolies and Americans hated it. So FDR uh, was kind of the, got elected and stomped the last bits of it out, except for three industries that are still regulated monopolies. Electricity is the first and alcohol is the second and gambling is the third. Um, you can draw your own conclusions from that, but it's, uh, it's remarkable that this outdated business model has prevailed uh, until you peel, as I do in my book, you peel under the surface and you can understand exactly why this business model has remained unchanged. But at first glance, you kind of scratch your head and you say, well, gosh, why, why are we still doing this, um, this 100-year-old business model? And that's what I do, do think needs to change. Utilities, they're always going to be a part of our future. But this business model that they've embraced and um, built upon, I think that needs to be readdressed slowly uh, but thoughtfully. So I know you you focus a lot on distributed solar and rooftop solar. From your perspective, does that pose a threat to the utility and to the utility business model as it has existed over the past hundred years? Uh, do you think Netflix streaming was a threat to Blockbuster? I'm sure Blockbuster at the time didn't think so. <laughs> yeah, but in uh, hindsight, yes, absolutely. It's uh, we could go really deep into the wonky stuff, but I'm not sure you're listeners would be interested, but when you tear apart the arguments or dissect the arguments utilities are making as they absolutely, they spent hundreds of millions, arguably billions of dollars lobbying to prevent local energy, what I call local energy, uh, so rooftop solar and small scale, uh, commercial solar. Um, there's a, there's a leaked report that has since been removed from all websites in the utility, but their, their, uh, their industry trade association created a white paper about maybe eight years ago. And it basically said for the first time in our century history, we as, a, as an industry face a, a threat, a competitive threat that could render us irrelevant. And that is rooftop solar. Uh, so the, the what you hear from utilities publicly is very different than that. And I'm sure many, most utility executives who are fighting rooftop solar believe they're doing it for some of the headline reasons we read about. But I think the people who are making the decisions realize that this is much more of an existential threat to a business model that any business would love to have, but only electric utilities have managed to maintain this long. So that kind of leads into another question that I had, but I, I'd, I'd love to just dive into that topic now, uh, which is that of net metering. Uh, I think that this is really tied into this topic overall. You know, we've seen across the country uh, utilities working on trying to roll back uh, net metering structures as they currently have existed and what's helped to lead to a lot of the growth in the industry and, and um, compensating customers for the benefits they're providing to the grid. So we've seen, you know, fights break out in states like Nevada and now California, uh, North Carolina, back in, in Florida as well. And, and now in North Carolina, our organization NCSEA, along with a number of other partners, just brokered a settlement with Duke Energy to move into the next phase of, of net metering. Love that you did that. Thank you. <laughs> and um, it, to hopefully avoid, you know, some of the, the litigation um, that we've seen uh, in other places. So 
like what in your mind it, it so first off is is nem a fair compensation structure for rooftop solar and what is the most ideal financial paradigm for compensating solar generation let me start by saying that the utility argument about cost shifting is a complete fabrication uh or at least it's a uh, it's a red herring uh, the any business that owns a lot of assets whether it's an airline or electric utility has to shift costs between customer bases. That's just a fact. The beginning of the utility industry, when Sam Insel created it in the 1930s, um, every single dollar that goes throughout a utility's P&L is cost shifted in some way. If you live in a, in a, a low-income, highly dense urban environment, wiring each of those families in a high-rise is really inexpensive, but wiring people in a more affluent suburban environment is uh, quite a bit more expensive per family, but yet they pay the same rate. So that's a classic example that's been around for a hundred years as to why low-income families are um, subsidizing wealthy families. It's uh, the other one that people aren't aware of, and I talk about in my book, is that in 2019 uh, or 2020, uh, there was more money lost, more revenue lost to utilities because of LED light bulbs uh, than from rooftop solar. And, uh, and LED light bulbs also tend to skew heavily towards wealthy families. Uh, less low-income families tend to buy cheaper bulbs, uh, which are less efficient. And so it's another point where low-income families are costs shifting towards uh, wealthy families. The Wall Street Journal had an op-ed called The Welfare for the Wealthy. I mean, this whole notion of cost shifting is so blown up. But the question you have to ask yourself is with LED bulbs being twice as large in 2020 as rooftop in terms of cost shift, the entire industry, dense urban uh, customers are cost are basically subsidizing wealthy suburban customers. This notion of cost shifting has been around for a hundred years. It's embedded in the utility industry and every asset intensive industry. So why is it that the utilities have decided that Rooftop solar is the single one that they've decided to nationalize and spend hundreds of millions of dollars marketing and lobbying on. What's different about this one over every other cost shifting that they have dealt with and every other industry that deals with cost shifting? What's unique about this one? Well, the answer is that this is the first one that threatens them. Uh, and so they've kind of picked this one particular thing on their line item of their PL and said, this thing is horrible. It's a social moral outrage. And uh, therefore, uh, and, and the answer is, and the other reason that you know it's a disingenuous argument is that utilities have an incredible range over history of things that they can do to address cost shifting. They, they couldn't exist for five minutes without cost shifting uh, in all the different ways. And, and sometimes you, you, there's a lot, by the way, there's a lot of cost shifting for wealthy people, uh, wealthy customers end up cost shifting to low income customers, which is the right way that it should be, uh, or subsidizing uh, low income customers by things like a uh, uh, bill reductions and credits for low-income customers. So cost shifting goes in every direction. Um, so if the utilities were really concerned about low-income customers, that was their goal. Um, they could have uh, tweaked the subsidizations for low-income customers. They could have created incentives for uh, apartment and high-rises to put solar on the roof or to buy community solar. They could be amping up community solar. There's, there's In my book, I list about 10 things that utilities do in other segments to address cost shifting of low-income customers. But in the particular case of rooftop solar, the only thing the utilities say that can be done is to essentially shut down rooftop solar. 
So they picked one cost shifting amongst dozens that they live by, and they picked one solution among the 10 that they apply to every other type of cost shifting. And the answer is we don't like rooftop solar because it's an existential threat to their business, the first one they've ever had. And uh, so I think that the cost shifting argument, while it's it's ba- they're actually very smart people, including Duke Energy, have found that the cost shifting happens at such a low level that it's not actually a financial impact to, um, to, to the utilities. Uh, so even the mere fact that costs are being shifted is a debated. Um, and if it is being shifted, the remedies are so broadly available, but they pick on the single one, which is make it too expensive to put rooftop solar up. So that's, you know, I wanted to start with addressing this common concern that cost shifting is this very real problem and it demands many people who think rooftop solar is a, is a critical, but they say, but not if it's going to cause costs to be shifted onto low income families. Um, I wanted to put that out there because to talk about what should be done, um, it's important to realize that the arguments we're having today are just red herrings. Every time we have this discussion about what should a consumer be uh, paid for for their um, excess solar, that's the question that everyone debates. And I would say I have never in a single time seen anyone ask the the right question. The question that's asked is what is it worth to Duke Energy or, or Georgia Power how much do they pay? Well, utility, public utilities exist at the, at the favor of their customers, their shareholders or voters. Um, I think the question that needs to be asked is what is it that it's worth to my neighbor if I sell him or her solar? That's the question. Every other market in the world, in the U.S., anything I want to sell, lawn chairs on eBay, pick, you know, anything I sell, it doesn't ask what is it worth to me to sell it. It's what is it worth to you to buy it? And the only reason no one ever has that discussion is the utilities are monopolies. And so I can't sell you electricity as my neighbor. It's illegal. It's illegal everywhere in the United States and illegal almost everywhere in the world. That's changing in some places like Australia and Europe, but broadly it's illegal. And so when you don't start with that question, any answer you come up with to the narrower question is, is it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an imperfect answer because, and often a wrong answer, because it's 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 assumed that the right answer is what's good for utilities and their shareholders, which is nowhere else in business does anyone say, well, I'm not going to buy a Samsung phone because it might harm Apple. Apple might become less. But see, you laugh, right? But that's the that is the exact same argument that we are having about net metering. You have to, I mean, stop and think about it. But that's the exact same argument. What, what does it do to the profits of utilities if I, as a consumer, have a better alternative that I prefer and will save my family money? Um, and the answer is I don't get a chance to do that because I don't have a fair market to sell my kilowatt hour. So the right answer on that metering is that I should be able to sell electricity to my neighbor. That's the right answer. And I, I know exactly what my neighbor will pay because um, there's a rate on our bills that's, you know, he's buying it from me instead of the, uh, from the utility. So there's a known rate. So the, the, the short answer is that the right price for net metering in a completely monopoly controlled industry is uh, it should be bi-directional. I should, they should pay me what I pay them, or I should pay them uh, what they pay me. And, uh, uh, and until we have actual competition, like 99.99% of every other businesses that we live with, um, the question needs to start with what's right for consumers, not what's convenient for utilities in terms of the pricing of net metering.
I've been to a, a couple of, of conferences recently, and um, the last episode that we, we just published was from uh, AESP's annual conference. And we had these very similar discussions where we were talking about all of these innovative programs offered by the utility. And I think people get really excited and caught up in all of this. But there were a number of times throughout the course of that conference where speakers and organizers really had to reposition everybody to kind of think about the consumers at the core of what it is that we're trying to do, right? Those are the 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 folks who are having to deal with high high energy burden, the, the utility bills that are having to deal with, uh, like those are who we should kind of keep in our crosshairs as the, the most important person in this equation. And so I think it's, it's important that you talk about um, what is right by the consumer versus what's right by the shareholder. So kind of getting back to, to your book, Freeing Energy, you, you provide a really fascinating focus on disrupting the traditional model of energy generation and distribution, which we just talked about, um, through local solar. Um, and in solar, the- and ba- solar and battery, just that's, a, that's where we're going. Uh, and I think there's a very large distinction economically, technically, from a, a, a sort of a microgrid from a solar-only system. But today, solar-only is the predominant technical solution, but I don't think that'll be the case in 10 years. That's a, I mean, that's a really good point. And to kind of bring back up the, the agreement, uh, the settlement agreement that our organization brokered with the utility here, uh, there's a provision in there specifically focused on time of use rates, which would help to incentivize additional storage deployment in the state here, which we've seen very little of uh, because there's been no real financial mechanism to, to enable that or no real financial reason for a customer to install storage aside from the resiliency perspective. Um, so why, what are some of the biggest blockers, um, to local solar and storage taking off more exponentially given all of the benefits that we've talked about, uh, already? I know, you know, one thing we, we just mentioned, right, is not being able to sell to your neighbor and being compensated, uh, adequately for the benefits you're providing to the grid, but are there other sort of, uh, issues or barriers to seeing larger, uh, scaling of local solar and storage. Before I answer that, let me just do a quick check off of why local energy is so much better than people give it credit for. Uh, when you have solar and battery, you have resiliency. And if you've lived in Texas or California or Louisiana, this is taking on a new level of meaning in solar battery system, Puerto Rico, solar battery systems are taking off extremely quickly. Politicians love to talk about jobs. The president of the United States loves to talk about jobs. But yeah, when he talks about jobs, he talks about transmission jobs, building transmission towers and offshore wind. Those people come into a community to build the transmission or offshore wind, and then they leave. If you're building local energy, first of all, there's 11 times more jobs created per megawatt installed for local energy than utility scale, 11 times more jobs. And when you pay people in your community, the money, the profits from that company and the taxes that people pay who do the installation, it stays in your community. Studies show that 20, 25% of the money paid to install solar in your on your house or your church or your school or your campus um, stay in that community to pay for the fire people and the police officers and the teachers in the parks. And, and so when we talk about jobs and communities at the highest levels of state and federal government, nobody is pointing out this huge benefit of local energy, the jobs and the, uh, the, the money staying in the communities. So... 
I always want to point that out because people tend to say, is it cheaper? And if not, they say it's resiliency, but that's expensive and not everyone needs it. That's why I adopted the term local energy, uh, because I wanted people to realize this isn't just a, is my electricity bill going to go down? This is like farm to table for electrons. It's a, it's a movement that transcends technology, that transcends um, uh, policy. It's about communities and families. It's about equality and equity. And it's just crazy to me that people don't see this as one of the best tools that's ever been created and available to address all this myriad of issues. And yet no one's talking about it. Uh, that's why I wrote a book. I'm not a writer. You know, that's why I had to write. This stuff has to get out there. That's why I'll spew this stuff out to anybody that'll listen. Because I'm hoping in five years, people will say, of course, if it's equal between building a utility scale system and a, and a, a, a similar number of large, small scale systems, of course, we do the small scale systems. It's better for everybody if you do the small scale systems, except for Wall Street investors. But past that, it's better for everybody. And, and that's a fact today. In five years, it's going to be even more of the case. So why aren't we doing more of it? The number one reason is awareness. And you know, it, it, this whole thing started as an environmental movement. And virtually everyone I speak to sees small-scale solar in the same bucket as large-scale solar in, in, in the sense that these are tools to shift us away from fossil fuels and move towards clean energy. But almost nobody carves out the fact that local energy is an entirely different business model with an entirely different set of benefits and challenges. And so the awareness is by far the largest challenge. Uh, I think the, the second challenge is the utilities saw this five or six years ago as one of the, the first threats that they've ever faced. And so they've done a range of upfront and decent things to slow it and a whole bunch of nasty behind the scenes, you know, fingers crossed behind their backs when they're sitting in front of a regulator things. And uh, I try really hard not to vilify the utilities because I've yet to meet a person who leads a utility that I don't think is a fine person. I'm sure there are many, but I haven't met any yet. And uh, uh, most of them are operating in a business model that their grandfathers, their great great grandfathers, some of them are been in the industry for that. You know, their families have this lineage of being in utilities, and, and utilities changed this country. It set the country, the United States, ahead of so many other countries because we, you know, homogenized and, and, and uh, democratized energy before most other places in the world. And so I'm all for the historical and future role of utilities. But they are currently the largest, the second largest blockage to local energy becoming more positively, more widely and quickly embraced. And I think the third thing uh, is, is, is the technology. And the hardest parts are done. They're here. We have them. Solar panels are dirt cheap. Uh, and they're getting, you know, in five years, they'll be 30% cheaper. And five years after that, they'll be another 30% cheaper. They follow the same economic curves as Moore's Law. Uh, and, and it, because as I say in the book a hundred times, solar is a technology, it's not a fuel. And, uh, so when you think about your, every new iPhone you get is way better than the previous one. You're not surprised. You expect Apple to put out a better iPhone for the same amount of money, but nobody in the utility industry expects that natural gas is going to be five times better in three years. It's, you know, it's just as dirty and likely to be the same price or maybe more. Uh, so you have a whole industry, a century old industry that has no notion of how technology curves are affecting it. They don't see it. They don't calculate it. They don't understand it. They feel very threatened by it. Um, that's why if you look at uh, the projections from the uh, 
U.S. Department of Energy's Energy Administration, Energy Information Administration, the EIA, or their counterpart in Europe, the IEA. You know, for 15 years, their projections for solar penetration were off by as much as five and ten times, and they finally owned up to it in the last couple of years. And uh, you, you may or may not know that the new person who's uh, been um, nominated to run the EIA is a North Carolina State professor. And he was just uh, went through his Senate hearings last week, I think, or the week before. I, I was invited to be a tiny part of that, so I, uh, I was aware of it. But yeah, so North, another fantastic thing that North Carolina is bringing to the energy equation. Bill and I had a quick aside where we spoke about Joe DeCarolis, who was recently confirmed as the EIA administrator and hails from NC State University as well, which led into a conversation about the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center, my former employer also. I'll cut back in with some short praise from Bill for the Clean Tech Center team. Another asset that North Carolina doesn't get credit for, and I point out to everybody, is that you know the Desire database is the record, the, the policy database of record, with no close second. And uh, you know I am so tickled that you work there. I mean that's that's hard work. That's that's honest work. You know uh, I, I had a I've had a couple conversations with Autumn Proudlove over the years, and I say, like, how do you know all this stuff? She goes. I just sit down and read everything that comes out and no one else wants to do it. And I was like, I, I love that. I mean, it's very, even though it's a contained within the university, uh, it's a very entrepreneurial sort of mission driven organization, which I really respect. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I have, I have nothing but love and admiration for everything the team over at the clean tech center is doing. Um, and it seems almost every single renewable energy company I come across within the industry, especially solar, um, relies upon the desire database uh, for project development. Um, so, you know, I've had the chance to sit down with um, uh, Woodson a few times, who's the uh, head of North Carolina State. And every time I do, I, I think that, and I don't even know if you're members, but I've probably sat down with them four times and uh, over the last couple of years. And every time I mentioned, you know, you have this thing called the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center and uh, it's world leading. It's deeply respected and you know you should be very proud of the, oh yeah i think i am but you know i think it's uh that's a gem that needs a lot more attention a lot more funding that the country com- country needs them to do that and i it's i wish they just had the, a, a teeny like the, the the pocket change money that the federal government puts into things like this uh they would do so so much good with it but anyway shout out to steve and autumn and everybody absolutely and to you absolutely so all right so can you tell us a little bit more about overall the, the Freeing Energy project? You've, you've alluded to your book, Freeing Energy. You've also uh, got a podcast. So what, what's the deal with Freeing Energy and all of these efforts that kind of fall under this project? The top level is pay it forward. This is, I would call it a nonprofit effort, except it's so unprofitable that it, I call it a negative profit effort. Uh, and I'm fortunate enough to be able to, to put some money into it, but it started as my own personal exploration of how I could spend the next couple of decades of my career in the most impactful, important way. And I am a business guy first and foremost. And so I am looking for things that have genuine business opportunities. And I came across clean energy, which is, I talk about the story of how I found it in the book. And, um, you know, it's, uh, the Freeing Energy Project was kind of born out of my own journey to understand the highs and lows of this clean energy future so many of us are working towards. And it started as a uh, uh, sort of a curiosity thing. I knew I was going to write a book, or at least I knew I would begin the process of writing a book so I could get in front of people like Amory Levins and 
I had dinner up in Charlotte with uh, Jim Rogers, the head of Duke uh, Energy for a while before he passed away. One of the most amazing dinners of my life. And uh, and uh, there were times when I didn't think I'd finish the book. I, I think I have to genuinely, in a very sad way, thank the COVID uh, pandemic for locking me in my basement and forcing me to finish the book. Uh, I had no more excuses not to write. But uh, as I was interviewing people and sharing and writing articles and sharing them with people, a couple of my friends, including my son, uh, said, Dad, you're uh, you're a decent writer, but you're you're kind of like a textbook, and you should try doing podcasts. And I said, I don't listen to podcasts. I don't really like podcasts. He said, Well, you're much more interesting to listen to. So, at the advice of several people, I brought together a group of really talented folks, uh, including some people I'd worked with before, including Sam Easterby, who's our producer, uh, who's got a great background in radio and TV, and. We started doing this. We're at our 70th episode. And Sam's vision, he's, he is the producer. The, his vision was to bring human stories, just like you're doing. Like It's not just a technology. There's a person here who has fears and aspirations. And we try to bring that out in the Free Energy Podcast, all focused on the small-scale systems, whether it's a system in Africa that costs uh, $50 uh, or it's a you know it's a, a Stone Edge microgrid in uh, Sonoma Valley, California that's I have no idea how much tens of millions of dollars, but it's the most advanced microgrid. It's been running off grid for you know five years. Um, and to talk to these people, to get their stories and to inspire uh, ultimately some stories that we wanted to put in the book. So rather than the book just becoming a, a textbook of technology and business, it thanks to Sam's vision, we now it's it's got dozens of really powerful personal stories of people of entrepreneurs and people who have benefited from clean energy where they didn't have it before. And that, that all sort of all came together towards the book and a series of articles and, and interviews and things like that. So ultimately it's really a media project. Freeing energy is really a media project capped off of the final piece of a book to raise the world's awareness that um, there is a better, faster, cheaper, more equitable path to clean energy than anybody is talking about. Oh, and by the way, it may be the business, biggest business opportunity in history. Um, you can go do crypto, you can go do AI, but I will contend, and I've got the numbers in the book to show that this is likely the biggest business opportunity that the modern society has ever seen. And to that point, there are a lot of crypto mining operations now that are moving in the direction of being uh, powered by renewable resources. I've got a few friends that work in the uh, renewable space, specifically developing projects for crypto mining operations. Um, what a what a wild time that we live in, right? That sentence ten years ago would have sounded like a foreign language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm too. So yes, I I am glad that crypto mining is recognizing the value of renewables. I probably looked at five business plans for it. Um, it's a tough business. It's a fascinating concept. It's a tough business. Hopefully the people you're talking to are smarter than me and they figured out how to make money with it. Um, I'm actually talking to a CEO next week um, who's, I think, got one of the most advanced businesses combining those two things. And I'm anxious to go deep with him to understand how much of this is promise based on hockey stick numbers and how much of it is got near-term demonstrable value flow for investors. Either way, it's a fascinating concept and a whole lot better generating Bitcoin with solar than it is with coal. So we can all agree on that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, Bill, I've, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation and I know our listeners have as well. 
Uh, so I'd encourage them uh, if they want to dive in more to some of the topics that we talked about today uh, to make sure to give your, your book a read and also to tune in to the Freeing Energy podcast as well to hear some of those personal narratives and stories that, that you're talking about. Uh, you know, I've had a chance to, to listen to the podcast myself and it's incredible and uh, the book as well. I know I've, I've had a chance to, to get started in reading it and I've been really fascinated by um, the stories that I've read in there as well. And I know it has a lot of, uh, you know, wonderful critical acclaim as well. And I know you've spent a lot of time putting that together. So I definitely encourage our listeners to uh, check out the Freeing Energy Project uh, and, uh, and make sure to, to give Bill a follow online as well. So, Bill, thanks so much for joining us today on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. It's been a lot of fun. I love talking about this stuff. Really great to bring it back to North Carolina, which uh, I miss and respect and love. And I think uh, you're doing a wonderful job of reminding everybody outside, even outside of North Carolina, what a great place North Carolina is in terms of the energy future of the world. Okay, that does it for today's episode. But my key takeaway is the incredible opportunity that local solar provides to the grid, the future of decarbonization, and to individuals like you and me who stand the most to gain through bill savings and economic opportunities. We're obviously seeing a lot of challenges right now to the growth of local solar, given the potential for disruption to the energy field as a whole. However, it's important to recognize the strides that have been made to date, but to also recognize the large potential moving forward that could be unlocked with new financial or regulatory structures. We're seeing it right here in North Carolina as we speak. In fact, as I teed up in our conversation and in updates on previous episodes, there's currently a proposal sitting in front of the North Carolina Utilities Commission to continue compensating rooftop solar customers for the value they provide to the grid, while also unlocking additional financial structures for storage and EVs. Overall, I'm excited that we've recruited Bill over to the clean energy side of things because it's going to take innovative thinkers like him to continue to push the ball forward to ensure we capitalize on the moment in front of us. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 69 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.